0: Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership
1: into new business. Welcome to another episode of the Thought Leadership Project podcast. I'm Jay
2: Harrington. Tom Nixon is with me. Hi, Tom. Jay, it's that time of year again, and I'm not talking about my favorite season, which is fall. Yeah. Um, are you, What are you talking about? <laughs> well, let's see. We got a couple of geeks who host a podcast about thought leadership that we named it Thought Leadership Project. And we specialize, or so we say, in thought leadership PR. And we've got a LinkedIn training program and membership group called the Thought Leader Collaborative. What do you think I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. We, we
1: have a very on point episode today, if, if that's what you're getting at. Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah, love it. I thought you were going to say playoff baseball season, perhaps, but that wasn't what you were talking about.
2: I know that's right in your wheelhouse, but not mine.
1: Yeah, that's what's preventing me from getting sleep, despite being sick. Um, yeah. So, in any event, uh, let's get into it. Um, so, we do have a a great episode, I think, uh, for you today, and two guests uh, who are going to talk to us about one of our favorite studies, annual studies out there, which is the Thought Leadership Impact Study. Um, so. Our guests today are Joe Kingsbury, who is a uh, US managing director of Edelman Business Marketing, which is the unit within Edelman focused on creating modern integrated marketing to drive demand and revenue growth for business to business clients. And also with us is Tusar Barrick, who is the director of agency and partner marketing at LinkedIn. And Joe and Tussar are two of the architects behind the recently released 2021 B2B Thought Leadership Impact Study. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks Thanks for having us. us. Yeah, of course. Um, So we are, I guess, first off, uh, Tom and I want to thank you for putting this study out because, you know, as consultants who do deal with clients uh, regarding some of these issues um, around thought leadership marketing, you know, we and, and particularly in the legal industry, um, you know, we, we have certain viewpoints about the impact of thought leadership and we share those with our clients, but it's really helpful to have data that actually backs some of this stuff up that we're preaching. Um, so this is definitely a study that we point to frequently when, when talking to clients and saying like, it's not just us saying this, it's, there is actually an impact out there um, from the thought leadership you create. So, so we love it and keep up the great work. Um, and so, for purposes of this episode, what Tom and I are going to do is kind of cite some statistics from the study, um, some of the conclusions, and then just have kind of a free-flowing conversation about these issues. So, um, Joe, I want to kind of direct the first question your way, and and too sorry to the extent you have any uh, feedback you'd like to provide on it, please jump in. But um, I I want to note that you know th- there's a certain paradox identified in the study, which is that you know there's more um, there's more content than that's being created than ever um, was one of the conclusions. Um, there is a certain uh, lack of quality of of a great deal of that content. Yet, consumers of that content, in this case, you know, B two B decision makers and buyers uh, have a still have a great thirst for thought leadership content. So, um, I think a couple of the noteworthy statistics is that. Um, You know, 40% of decision makers say they have a hard time keeping up with what's coming at them from a content standpoint. Um, But at the same time, uh, you know, there's only 15% of that content that decision makers consider to be very good or excellent. And 71% of decision makers say that less than half of the thought leadership they consume gives them valuable insights. So there's kind of a glass half full, glass half empty viewpoint you could you could come away with from this content that, oh, well, maybe there's just so much noise out there that it's not worth it. But at the same time, the demand is still there, right? So I guess there's not really a question in that, Joe, but maybe you could just add <laughs> some flavor to, to those stats and just paint a picture of the landscape for us right now about the thought leadership marketplace.
0: Yeah, happy to. So, um, I mean, as you point out on its face, it, it feels like there's a, a bit of a paradox in there um, what I would point to is, you know, the, the last three years that we've studied the topic, um, we we previously focused on the kind of full funnel uh, impact of thought leadership um, and demand generation and, and thought leadership when it's done well. And although that wasn't a primary focus for this year's study, it's certainly the, the foundation for the overall concept of the study. And so what we found is that when thought leadership is done well, it has impact not only in driving awareness and consideration, but all the way through um, actually driving you know, actual revenue wins as well as things like cross-selling, upselling, you know, getting customers to be loyal and, and to purchase even more uh, from a particular uh, provider. Um, on the flip side, when it's not done well, um, equally, uh, buyers told us that they were just as quick to eliminate somebody from contention based on poor quality thought leadership. And so getting back to the study uh, this year, I think it's it's sort of that insight on steroids, which is that it's even harder to break through because there's uh, really just been uh, you know so much content developed uh, during the pandemic. Uh, but when you break through, it, it can absolutely be effective in helping to accomplish business goals, but there's always that risk that if it's not done well, that it can uh, really uh, sort of create, you know, tangible damage against your business as well.
3: Yeah, and I would I would just probably add on to that, um, you know, also in the study, we make note of a couple other studies, right, that happened within the B2B purchasing decision cycle. In particular, we talk a little bit about Gartner and their research that says, I think, like 80 to 85 percent of a typical purchasing decision is done before uh, a providers actually engage. And thought leadership is really a big part of that. Right. Think about when you're making any big purchase whether on a personal level or for your work you're spending a lot of time doing that pre-research beforehand. And so that's why there is this need of people wanting to get more and more info because they're doing their own research before they talk to any sort of provider. And that's, that's where that like glass half full part comes in, in that there's a want for it, even though there's a glut that was created by the pandemic, right? We are no longer, or, well, now we're just starting to re-travel, go back into, you know, conferences and things like that. But up until now for the past year and a half, almost two years, we've been stuck at home, and uh, or the vast majority of people have been stuck at home. And because of that, people um, have moved to like this online forum to be able to to read stuff and get information. And it's caused this glut of information that a bunch of marketers have created, but not necessarily always the most valuable, of all.
2: Yeah, that's great. And Joe, I want to come back to, I think we probably just will organically, but I want to come back to this notion of what, what it looks like when somebody's doing thought leadership content well. Um, But before we get back to that, I I wanted to follow up with you, uh, Tarek, because you, or I'm sorry, Tussar, because you wrote, in addition to being an architect behind the study, you also wrote this great piece uh, that was entitled, The Four Key Revelations from the Edelman LinkedIn 2021 B2B Thought Leadership Impact Study. One of the things that popped off the page at me was observation or takeaway number four, where you talk about stylistic choices make a difference. And you cite a statistic from the study that says 87% of respondents said that content can be both intellectually rigorous and fun to consume. And I bet a lot of people look at that and say, how can it be both? And I think a lot of lawyers, a lot of professional service providers, I think they almost too often err on the side of trying to look professional and um, academic when really that I, what I'm hearing is that people want this content to be accessible. They want it to be, in this case, fun. What does fun look like in your estimation? Yeah, it's it's
3: a great point. And, uh, you know, I, I, you're really testing me on all these stats. I got to remember all these stats <laughs> off the top of my head that we have in there. But I uh, appreciate that you're saying the But no, it's, it's true. I mean, I think, you know, I, I go back to this idea of, when we talk about the pandemic, I know it's affected all parts of our lives, but in the professional setting, we've seen this at LinkedIn as a whole, there is this meshing of your professional world and your personal world, right? And it's becoming more and more the case where there's this intersection. And so this need to be human has always existed to some degree, but it's come out even more in this time period. And so, you know, what we're, what we mean by that is people want to be able to read something and enjoy reading it, right? When you're reading something very academic, very statistical heavy, it's, it can be, it can be tough to, tough to get through. And so it's important to make sure there's a human tone or human nature. Now I'd say, I'd argue that fun, depending on industry might mean different things, right? If you're in the legal industry versus the financial services versus healthcare, if you're too fun in healthcare, that might not be the great, the the greatest place, right? And so you want to figure out what that balance is for you industry, but it's important to be human. I think fundamentally, how, how can we connect on that basis? And we talk about in the study beyond that, like the need to not just come off as this big uh corporate entity and when you put out stuff making sure there's a human face to attached to it. Even within this report, if you looked at our year over year report, hopefully you've noticed there's humanness that's come into the report. We've we've worked really hard to make sure that there's a way for people to digest and enjoy. And it's it's actually, I think, also what's happening in the general B2B world. Um, as we think about B2B marketing, you know, there's always this economy kind of B2B and B2C. Uh what we're what we tend to we tended to forget in the past is at the end of the day, whether you're selling to an organization or selling to a person, it's a human you're selling to at the end of the day. We are all yeah. people and we need to make sure that we keep that in the back of our mind. How do we how do we engage with them um, in a proper way? Yeah. I mean, Tusar kind of alluded
0: to the fact that that fun means different things to different people, right? Just in, in life as it does in this context as well. I think really what maybe your listeners should be thinking about is what does enjoyable to consume look like for your particular target audience? Because the bar for um, capturing attention is just so high now. You're competing with so many different things and it's um, certainly uh, table stakes to be you know, extremely relevant in what you have to say uh, to the target audience. But even on top of that, because of that flood of content that we've been talking about, it also just needs to be you know, enjoyable to consume.
1: Yeah. Um, And kind of following up on on this theme of, uh, you know, what is enjoyable to consume and what connects you on a more human level with an audience, um, I just wanted to get your perspectives about the following issue, which is kind of the the role of LinkedIn as a thought leadership platform. Um, It's been interesting, I think, certainly among the People who pri- primarily listen to our podcast, which are our lawyers, we've seen a, an amazing increase in the in the amount of engagement and content creation on LinkedIn, for example. Um, and I think that that has given people an opportunity to be um, thinking more so about not just what they're creating in terms of thought leadership content, but but where they're publishing it as well, right? Because it's all about finding places where your audience spends its time and attention in order to make that thought leadership have an impact. Um, so I, I'm interested, I, I I have had a fundamental shift, for example, in terms of my approach to LinkedIn, which I used to perceive as more of a place to promote content from my blog or other places I would publish content. And now I very much think of it as my blog in a real way. Like it's, it's sort of the tip of the spear Top of the funnel for anything I'm writing, whether that be, you know, it's essentially the place to share ideas, um, publish original content as posts. And then to the extent that content resonates with my audience, because I'm actually able to get that real time feedback, then that might inform longer form content that I'm creating. So I guess I'm just curious about your impressions of have you seen a shift of people who are creating more content on linkedin as sort of the, the place to start as opposed to creating content elsewhere and just promoting it on linkedin is that a trend that you've you've kind of identified
3: yes we are. that's a great point we're seeing that across the board both from what we call members which are people like you and i who connect on linkedin mm-hmm. and also from companies mm-hmm. we've spent a lot of time and effort um, around our what we call our pages effort which is the company pages. And we've recently given the ability for companies to do long form posts, for companies to put out content in a way that acts access their blog, um, as you described to some degree, and also for members to be able to do that as well. We're seeing like engagement at all time highs. We, we're, we're going at like almost 40%, I think 38% of the last that I saw of number of engagements. We've got, uh, I think like 774 million members globally um, last I saw. And so there's a there's a ton of people on there, a ton of engagement, particularly in this period where again, everyone's at home. I, I keep feeling like I'm saying that, but that's the truth yes. of the matter. And so um, we're seeing a ton of engagement and we're seeing people to your point, like there is a whole ecosystem that exists of creators as we call them that are creating content, but also engaging with content. Um, the engagement levels are, are great in terms of how much people are, doing exactly what you're saying. And we love seeing that, right? This idea of being able to inform it, it's not a a research study by any means, but it is a way to inform how you think about things and to help hypothesize and and test it out a little bit. Um, And so it's both a way to get content out there from a distribution perspective, but equally so, and I argue potentially even more importantly so to, to get that feedback loop back and engage in what's hopefully a meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, the most valuable thing for me, I think, is it's you know, writing content has always been a very asynchronous thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're you put something out in the world, and then depending on where you're publishing, you may not get any feedback on that. Uh, yeah. But publishing on LinkedIn allows you to engage in in more of a synchronous conversation with the people that you're trying to curate as. Readers and ultimately perhaps clients. So I think that's that's really a valuable aspect to it that's unique to social media in general. But I think for for our audience, LinkedIn is the place where that happens most frequently.
3: Yeah. And actually we have someone um on the team that I think you might know, named Callie. She works on yep. our um on our editorial team and creator side. And she mentioned something to me that just stuck with me in this idea of LinkedIn is a uh, platform of gratitude. And it's the mm-hmm. idea that mm-hmm. like you can give and share ideas and it's it's a weird time in social networks let's be honest right across the board right um, with what's going on um because we are a professional ecosystem that's not to say things aren't said that might be questionable but in general like we um we see a lot of gratitude on the platform and we see engagement that's quality that enables people and companies to um to share thoughts and and hopefully make each other better that's the idea right our mission is create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce that is both from getting jobs, but also to be able to have a free exchange of ideas uh, back and forth.
2: Yeah. Hey, Joe, I wanted to get your take on something that uh, Tussar said a little, a little while ago, something I've been preaching for years because I've been in B2B almost my entire career. And I might even take it a step further because I say the same thing. I said, whether you're selling to a consumer or it's a business selling to another business, there's two real live people. On the end of that exchange, and I would say actually B two B has more of a person to person relationship than B two C. If I go into the hardware store and I buy a hammer, I have no relationship with the person who produced that hammer, and not really much of one the person that sold it to me. But if I'm buying a professional service, I have a deep relationship with that person. So this is a long way to set up Joe, your take on something that I've been believing for a long time. We've talked about it on this on this podcast or on this podcast, which is. So far we've talked about all written, thought leadership writing and that type of content. And I think that's usually what comes to mind. But if you're trying to show your personality, isn't something like what we're doing right now, a podcast or a video or something that is more three-dimensional? Um, isn't that showing more of your personality than even writing could? And I'm wondering what your take is on what people should think about going back to doing thought leadership content. Well, in terms of mixing the media format, it's not just mixing styles, but it, do you agree it's mixing media format and maybe you could comment on podcasting in particular?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that T star may have touched on this earlier as well, that this notion of, um, you know, being human, uh, you know the, the idea of authenticity and just how important that is in business to business and um, you know it's it's funny you talk about sort of buying the hammer the thing that you made me think about is that uh, if you buy that hammer and it's not the right hammer um, that's probably okay you can go back and exchange it for the one that you need and now you compare that to as you say you know a professional services deal where maybe the stakes are a little bit higher um, it's a high deal value um, in a lot of ways, that is a lot more emotional um, and fraught with risk for the buyer or the buyers involved in that personal and sometimes uh, you know, professional risk involved in that. And So it kind of runs counter to uh, the, the stereotype that um, you know, that B2C is just you know, so much more highly emotional than, than business to business. Um, but getting back to, I think, the core of your question, absolutely all of these new uh, media formats, whether it's video, podcasting. I think they're all just ways to, uh, you know, to, to really let that sort of the human element come out and, and the authenticity of it. I mean, one of the points in the study uh, that really jumped out of this this year was around the importance of featuring uh, prominently the, the authors uh, of a particular piece of, of IP or, or thought leadership. And um, and and even going beyond that is a desire for the the real subject matter experts and not necessarily just the high level business executives. So we see that um, oftentimes with our clients where the uh, you know the natural inclination is let's get the CEO out there talking sure. about you know X Y Z, where um, and and that's great right? They can be appropriate for uh, for many topics, but. Oftentimes, it it might not be the right fit. Maybe you need somebody who's, you know, sort of more, um, you know, you know, very deep into a particular topic because they will come off as more authentic, ultimately, to, um, you know, to a particular target audience. So, um, but yes, I, I think all of those different formats really kind of, you know, let personalities come through in a way that, you know, sometimes written content can't.
2: Jay, and just real quick to you, Jay. So mm-hmm. the, the example that Joe just brought up reminded me of when we interviewed on the podcast, the DEI officer at uh, Foley. Mm-hmm. What was her name? Uh, so um, I felt like, yeah, Alexis, I felt like I got to know more about that firm interviewing to your point, Joe, not the CEO or not even an attorney. Mm-hmm. I got to know more about that firm as a culture getting to know her than I would if I were to interview the CEO and got all the talking points and the PR prep and all that stuff. So Jay, I'm sure you felt that you knew Alexis beforehand. But going back to the question of this allows real personalities to kind of get together and, and meet each other.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I only knew Alexis from her writing on LinkedIn. Honestly, that was the only time that was the first time I would spoken to her. But I agree, I probably learned less about the firm than you did, because I used to work there. But yeah. um, <laughs> but, uh, but Yes. No. You, to your point, I think that that is absolutely the case. Um, I think that the high-level executives tend to, you know, have talking points to some extent. Right? They're very careful. Where you get more of a more of the inside story from someone who might be, um, you know, dealing with issues from a from a different perspective. So I, I agree with that.
3: Yeah. And I'd say, uh, Tom, to your question around like. Um... Mediums that we release on. We did talk a lot about writing, but in our previous study, I think it was twenty twenty, Joe. We talked about actually the different mediums and the importance of that. Right? Um, you know, we are all reading a lot of different things at a lot of different times. We are all trying to consume in different ways. I would argue when you're when we were commuting and people will start commuting again, you want different ways to engage with people in a way to like listen, like podcast for example a great way that I get a bunch of information that if you were told me five years ago just sit there and listen to someone's voice I'd have been like you're crazy there's no way I'm doing <laughs> that but that's how I get a lot of information when I'm going for a drive I'm uh, going about or just going for a walk because I need to get outside of those I don't realize I'm sitting at this chair for the next eight hours and I'm like I haven't gotten up once what's going on so it's a way to like have something going on in your mind, but it's not the it's not just in your eyes all the time. And so I think it's important to meet people where they are. We also talk a lot in this study and the previous one around snackable content. I think podcasts are a form of snackable content. So typically people read that and think, oh, I need to highlight my biggest stat numbers until like a social media post. Yes, that is true and that's helpful. But you also, again, it's about meeting people where they are and figuring out ways to engage with them in a way that might not be the way you would just do with a written paper that's very one way and and one direction.
2: Yeah. And not to believe yeah. the point, Jay, sorry, <clears throat> Joe, you could chime in here too, but uh, people are looking for excuses to consume content off screen too. I feel like we are in front of our screens constantly. Every meeting we take is in front of the screen every, all day. And so if you can offer things, it doesn't have to be a podcast. It could be some sort of, you know, an invitation to a clubhouse. It could be audio like that. Um, it allows people to be off screen and you have their undivided attention. In this case, we're going to do a podcast for 30 minutes, 30 minutes of undivided attention. Where else can you get that these days? Joe, you your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it,
0: so related to that, I, I was going to say because um, you were you were saying, you know, specifically on podcasts, what is it about that that makes it an effective medium? And and I think that part of it is um, there's just a, there's a little bit more sort of room to sort of breathe and operate and and think and express ideas that oftentimes traditional media really doesn't allow for that, and so. I think, uh, you know, one of you was saying that, you know, typically with the CEO, you're you're going to get sort of the set talking points. And if you think about it, just very tactical level, it's a reason for that. It's because they're being featured in a, you know, sort of, a um, you know, a unit of, you know, news media where th- they're really forced to convey the information in the most efficient um, and sort of fast, you know, way possible. Um, the great thing about podcasting, uh, just, you know, my opinion is that, it's, it's really a more intimate format where right in 30 minutes, you get a, have a chance to really have a conversation and it doesn't need to be, uh, you know, always overly polished. And I think that at some basic level that just really connects with people.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, all right. So I, I had a question, this circling back to maybe a more of a stylistic point again, <clears throat> and we see this, in all forms of thought leadership writing, whether it be writing a LinkedIn post or a longer form article, which is the need to immediately capture attention, right? And in, in there is so much noise out there that you don't have time to sort of do a lot of throat clearing and, and get to the point when it comes to content these days. And, and that can be a challenge for many professionals. I mean, I think it's 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 sort of um, a different way to look at things from how many professionals were taught to write, which is, you know, in an introduction, kind of a give the background, and then ultimately make the argument, Um, you got to sort of flip that script when it comes to creating thought leadership content, right? Because I think there was a stat that um, 56% of uh, respondents said that if their interest wasn't peaked within the first minute, they move on, they keep scrolling. Um, So any thoughts on just like, you know, the the issue of needing to grab attention immediately as it relates to creating content? So
0: I, you know, and two stars certainly chime in here as well from a LinkedIn perspective. But I think that even, um, you know, the data point about having one minute—that might even be generous, right? (laughs) Depending, depending upon sort of which uh, medium you're in, you you really may only have a handful of, of seconds to really grab somebody's attention. And one of the data points that I think stood out most to me not just in terms of, um, you know, I guess a user experience point of view, but it's the idea that, you know, more than 80% of global B2B buyers say, I want you to be provocative. I want you to challenge my belief on something. What I don't want you to do is just to validate my current thinking on a topic. So, you know, there's kind of a, there's, there's, you know, two sort of implications of that is, yes, you need to do the things um, from, just in terms of format and style, Uh, in order to, you know, effectively grab attention, but equally, if not more important is to have a provocative idea that's really going to pull somebody in and sort of, you know, um, you know, really bring them into
3: into your thinking. Yeah, for sure. I think we definitely see that. The one caveat I'll say to that is be provocative, but in an authentic way, right? Mm. If you're just trying to be provocative, be provocative, people will see right through that. And that's not going to, that's not going to work for you. So be authentic to yourself, figure out a way that you can uniquely identify who you are, who your company is, how, how you're getting out there to provide value, because ultimately it's, how are you providing value to the end reader, the end user of this, of this time? Um, And so that's, you know, I think very important. I think, just in general about the like handful of seconds at best that you have, especially in a scrolling platform or just with all the other things you're reading, listening to watching, hearing um, is this idea. Again, it goes back to what I said before around snackable content. Like it's really important to meet people where they are, understand how they can find what they need in a, in a quick way um, to be able to, to get there. People are spending a ton of time reading, right? I think we saw, um, like 50 plus percent are spending an hour or more. I think it was 54% or something like that, spending an hour or more consuming about leadership. And among the C-suite, that's like in the high 40s, right? So it's it's high no matter what level you're at. Um, and so in order to get that time, because there's this glut, you need to be able to meet them where they are and provide information that's provocative, but authentic and um, and helps them in whatever their endeavors are they're trying to achieve.
2: Great. Uh, Last question quickly, because I know we're kind of running out of time here. It's a big question, but however we can answer it succinctly, this is for the panel. So going back to what I said earlier, where it's how do we distinguish what high quality content is? I wanted to cite two quick data points from the study. Um, And Tussar, we're going to link to this in the show notes. So if you need to uh, freshen up on the stats, they'll be there. (laughs) Um, So two things, 77% 77 of buyers prefer pieces that feature deep subject matter, subject matter experts delving into specialized topics as opposed to senior executives speaking to high-level business issues. And 81% of buyers prefer to read provocative ideas that challenge their assumptions, which is what you just said, regarding a topic versus ideas that validate their current thinking. So last thoughts from each of you quickly on how you would define high-quality content for those who want to create it. Desire, start with you.
3: Sure. Um, I would say, and we we actually dug into this a little bit in our last study in 2020, which I would recommend uh, taking a look at. I think we linked to it in our current one um, on the idea of high quality and what that means. And to us, it means that you've got to find the zone where you are providing a unique opinion that's not the same as everyone else. Um, but that helps people move forward and what they what they're trying to achieve right people if they're just going to read this to joe's point earlier if they're just going to read the same thing over and over there there's no point it's a waste of their time. Um, and so you don't want to say something that is uh, what's widely known. Um, you want to be able to provide information that helps people, grow in their professional career. That's what they're taking the time to read this is, how do I make better decisions in my career and what I'm trying to do for my company? um, And that's, or what I'm trying to do for myself. And how do I make those um, decisions as I need to read and be informed on what's going on? So find the unique space that is yours. Um, and, and it might seem tough at first, right? Like if you're in an area that everyone seems to be into, um, you need to make sure that you have something that's pretty unique on, on what, you're, um, what you're focused on.
0: And I would say a big takeaway for me, it's, I actually, I think about my, my young kids a little bit here because, you know, you, you always tell them, um, you know, treat people how you want to be treated, right? Uh, it's a pretty simple idea. Even a kindergartner can get that. And yet, when you look at sometimes, um, you know, corporations that are creating thought leadership, uh, oftentimes really what they're trying to do is is to sell. And, and that really comes through sometimes in some companies' content is that they're overly salesy and they're not focused on genuinely providing value uh, in terms of education, knowledge, et cetera, uh, that the reader can take away. And so... Um, for me, I think that's kind of, you know, certainly one of the, the fundamental um, attributes around high quality is, you know, if that reader can really take away something, even if they never, you know, reach out to you, you know, about your your business or whatever, if they can take away something of value that helps them do their job better, if it gives them an idea that they might be able to apply. Uh, to their business, or it helps them kind of think about the future in a way that um, you know provides value. I, I, I think that that's really the uh, kind of the the starting point in terms of generating high quality thought leadership content.
1: Well, Joe and Tussar, this was a real pleasure. I, I know I learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. Um, we'll make sure to link up to the study probably this year's and last, just for perspective, if people want to compare kind of trends between the two. And um, we'll also definitely make sure to link uh, up your, your LinkedIn profiles. Anything else that we'd, any other places you'd point our audience to, or um, can, to get to know more about you or your businesses?
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, I'd say uh, definitely LinkedIn profile along with uh, the study link. When you see that, there's a bunch of information um, that I think will be useful. I think we actually linked the last, this is our fourth year. This is a labor of love uh, between Joe's team and my team, uh, every year. Um, it never feels like we have enough time to do it, but we're so excited that we were able to get this done. Um, and even with last year, with the craziness that was COVID, we were able to do a mini study as well, which we link, uh, can link to as well, uh, to provide information on, um, how to, how to best think about this.
0: And and from an Edelman point of view, um, we also have resources on Edelman.com. Um, if you just search, you know, B two B thought leadership or, or Google that, I'm sure you'll you'll get there. It's a lot of the same content, and uh, if you experience that on on LinkedIn, that's uh, that's great as well.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, we'll make sure to put all of that in the show notes. And again, thank you guys for your time. We really appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to 2022. <laughs> Already we're looking forward to it. <laughs> <I know. laughs> thinking about
2: it? It's scary enough. No, It will be interesting <laughs> to see what changes though in the next 12 months as we start getting back into the real world, maybe a little bit out of the digital world. I think a lot of this is probably permanent, but we'll see what happens next year. So, thanks yeah, gentlemen. Absolutely. Thank you. All Good right. to be with you. Thanks.
1: thanks for, uh, and thanks to our listeners. We'll be back next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.